0: Welcome everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Well, today... Is Father's Day right a day in which we honor and celebrate dad and I know that we've all seen plenty of ads and commercials over the past few weeks and so this is a day that has not snuck up on any of us right we're, we're fully aware of this day on the calendar now we know the date changes in the month of June but for, for the by-and-large we know all right June is the month in which Father day, Father's Day is happening However, you may not know that today, June 20th, is also World Refugee Day. World Refugee Day. And it's a day designated by the United Nations to honor refugees all around the world. Now, four years ago, uh, Vicki Moy, who's part of our LifePoint family, started a nonprofit called Starting Point. And the purpose of her organization is to aid Afghan refugees who have come to live in the Sacramento region. Now, believe it or not, Sacramento is the number one refugee resettlement location in the country. Right, the number one resettlement location in the country, and so there is no shortage of work for Vicky and her team. Some of you might be aware of Starting Point. Vicky has shared from stage before. There's been a various ministries at the church who have partnered with Vicky. But if you want more information, you can go to startingpointworld.com. Startingpointworld.com. Don't do it now, but make a note for later. We'd love for you to check out her organization and all that they are doing. But this past week, I spoke with Vicky about the work that they do when it helps refugees settle in this area. And as you can imagine, this is an absolutely overwhelming experience for anyone who would move here from a different country. Because for so many of them, there's almost nothing that's familiar to them. I mean, think about it. The culture is different. The language is different. How school works is different. Jobs, banking, restaurants, even the location of the grocery store. They have to figure out everything. And so Starting Point does their best uh, to work with refugees to not only welcome them upon arrival, but to get acquainted with life here in the Sacramento area and while they want to help refugees get settled and get plugged into America which of course means finding a job maybe learning the language helping their kids get enrolled in school the goal for Vicky and her team is not to fully assimilate the refugees into the american life and culture Now the definition of the word assimilate is to bring into conformity with the customs and attitudes of a dominant social group or nation. And so in order to fully assimilate, one must shed their beliefs, their cultures, their identity, and conform, take on the culture where they now live. But again, assimilation is not the goal. Rather, the goal for starting point is to help the refugees Acculturate. We're getting a vocab lesson this morning, right? Acculturate, which means helping them to learn about the culture that they live in and integrate aspects of that culture into their lives while preserving or maintaining their own heritage and background. Now, the past few weeks, we've been in this teaching series called to the church in Elk Grove. And throughout the series, we've been looking at four of the seven letters that John wrote to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And while we are not the initial recipients of those letters, they apply to us, to the church in Elk Grove as well. And we know this to be true because John writes in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And so as we dive into another letter this morning, we're going to see that the difference between assimilation and acculturation was significant for the church in Pergamum, and it's significant for us as well. Now this letter to the church in the city of Pergamum is found in Revelation chapter 2. And so if you have a copy of God's word this morning or if you're using a Bible app, I'd encourage you to navigate there now. Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to dive into this letter together. And I'll start by reading Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. You can follow along with me as I read. It says, To the angel in the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives." Now, centuries prior to this letter being written, the inhabitants of the city sided with Rome in order to defeat other uh, people groups, other kingdoms in the Mediterranean uh, region, the Eastern Mediterranean region. And this alliance centuries prior created strong ties between the city of Pergamum and Rome. And so those living in Pergamum, with the exception of Christians, experienced special treatment from Rome which ultimately led to the to the worship of Roman emperors among other forms of paganism and idol worship. Now commentators believe that that this combination of paganism and the persecution of uh, Christians in that city that took place in in Pergamum, Pergamum is is what led Jesus, remember that John put pen to paper, but these letters are from Jesus. And so they they believe that this combination, paganism and persecution, is what led Jesus to refer to this city as the place where Satan has his throne and where Satan lives. Could you imagine if Pergamum adopted this as their city slogan? Pergamum, home of Satan, right? Right? Like, what a a way to kill tourism real quick. I mean, you ever roll up to the city limits and say, you home of Satan, like, I'm out. I'm U-turning so hard, like, I am gone. And so you know, if Jesus is referring to this city as the home of Satan, you better believe this has gotta be a very difficult place for believers to live in. And from these verses, we know that persecution and martyrdom were real possibilities. In verse 13, we find a direct reference to one instance of a follower of Jesus being killed for their beliefs. However, even in these days of of intense trial and persecution, they were commended for remaining committed. They remained faithful. They didn't renounce their faith even when faced with persecution. Now, now, this level of persecution is unknown to us in the church in Elk Grove. It's unknown to us really anywhere in the West. However, here's what we do know. If or when persecution were to ever come to this degree or any degree, the expectation is that we would remain true, as this passage says. God's desire for us is that we would stand firm in our faith no matter what might come our way, no matter what form or intensity of opposition we might face. And so, if that's the case, knowing the expectation, knowing the standard, knowing the response we ought to have, we have to ask ourselves the question what am I doing to make sure that I'm able to stand firm? What Or or how am I preparing myself so that I'm able to remain faithful if I encounter opposition? And I think some of us are in danger because we have this assumption that our faith is this gigantic oak tree, strong and well-rooted, but in reality, it's more like a brittle twig waiting to be snapped at the first sign of resistance. Like we discussed two weeks ago, we, ha- we have a reputation for being alive and well, but we're closer to death. And this perception that we have of ourselves is based on a delusion. And so how do we change it? How do we fix it? Well, in order for us to remain firm, we have to grow and strengthen in our, our faith. Now, ultimately, God is responsible. He's he's the one that ultimately brings about our spiritual growth, but we have a role to play as well. Active dependence. We are fully dependent on him, and yet he's given us a job to do. And so what can we do to grow and strengthen in our faith so that we're able to stand firm? And certainly there's a lot of different things And and the ideas, the things that I'm going to share, it's not an exhaustive list by any means, but I'll give you a few thoughts. I mean, to grow and strengthen in our faith, we have to make attendance at a weekend service a priority. So job well done. You're here. You can check that box this week, right? Fantastic. You're well on your way. But the reality is, right, once or twice a month isn't going to cut it. We know that Hebrews 10.25 says, let us not give up meeting together. As some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. If we're gonna grow and strengthen our faith, we also need to spend time reading and studying God's Word on a daily basis. It's about making Scripture the foundation of our lives. And for some of us, when it comes to making this happen, it's a a matter of time management and figuring out when we're going to carve out time in our day to spend time reading and praying. And And I get it, right? Life is busy. No matter what stage of life we're in, we're all going at 100 miles an hour, it seems, all the time. Life is busy. Life is full, but if we can't carve out five to 10 minutes at least on a daily basis, I would argue that it's probably time to take a step back and reevaluate how we're spending our time, right? How we're spending our time. Now for others, I know it's not so much a matter of time management, but it's, it's a matter of knowing what to do with that time. How do I study the Bible? How should I read scripture? And I recognize that can be overwhelming as well. Like, I have this huge book. What do I do with it? Where do I even begin? And so if that's where you're at, here's what I want you to do. At some point, and maybe you want to write this down or take a picture of the screen, go to todayintheword.org. Todayintheword.org. And I want you to subscribe to a free Daily devotional, and you can get it on an app. You can get it in email, or you can get it in print, which means you have no excuses, right? And so you can get it in any format you want, and this is a great way just to begin the habit, to have a a structure to your time reading and studying God's Word. Certainly to also grow in our faith. uh, We need to be in community with other believers, Right? We need one another. Ecclesiastes makes this really clear. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12 to 12 says, Two are better than one because they have good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. And if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken if we are going to stand firm we need one another the church other believers we we need each other in order to to be encouraged and to stand firm in our faith at life point one of the ways we provide an opportunity to be in community is through life groups or small group bible studies and throughout the year we have three 10-week sessions of life groups in the spring in the fall and in the winter And if you're not in a life group, I would encourage you to get signed up. The spring session is about to end. Most groups take the summer months off and the fall session will kick off at the beginning of September and those registrations will open for the fall groups in mid August. And so kind of mark your calendar, say, okay, I'm gonna commit to being in a group this fall. And I recognize some of you might say, well, well Derek, there just hasn't been a group for the day and time I'm available. I want you to email lifegroups at lifepoint.org so we can talk about you starting a group in a day and time that works for you. We'll get you equipped. It'll be awesome. You'll be a powerhouse leader, right? And we will build that into you. We will help to develop and coach you up, all right? So this is the commitment, though, right? We want you to be in a group because we need one another. Now, I recognize September's a long way off. And so throughout the summer, though, we have these events that you can attend to begin building community with one another. For example, next Sunday is that church barbecue. Believe it or not, we recognize that you don't need the free food. Like, like (laughs) we get that. Like, we understand you probably have food on your table. You go to the grocery store. You're good to go. You're not relying on LifePoint, like, got to get that free meal. Like, we get it, all right? We get it. It's not about the food, right? It's not about the food. We want you to come together and hang out. So if you're like, Derek, I can't stand pancakes. Like, Derek, I will never eat a hot dog. Okay, still go. Hang out. It's not about the food. You got food at home. That's fine, right? But these are the types of opportunities that we have to build community with one another. We know, like, kids eat hot dogs. Like, maybe you're like, no, I like hot dogs. They're like, nah. But it's not about the food. This is an opportunity for us to build connection with one another because we need it. And again, the list could go on and on and on. We could have so many different examples or suggestions of how to grow and strengthen your faith. Fortunately, the believers in the city of Pergamum, they were rooted enough in their faith to stand firm and remain true in the face of persecution and hopefully we put ourselves in a position to do the same let's continue on to this next session, section the, the next portion of this letter to the church in Pergamum follow along as I read Revelation chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 It says nevertheless I have a few things against you you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. See, the believers in Pergamum, they were commended for their commitment in the face of trials. And yet, Jesus still says, I have a few things against you. They still got called out, even though they were doing some things right. I mean, they were withstanding persecution and the temptation to fall away, and they still got called out. And I think this serves as a great reminder that that God's desire for us is complete and total surrender. He wants holiness in every area of our lives. And, of course, there's grace for those times when we fall short, but we also have to understand, and, and this passage makes it clear, that God's not going to allow us to stay there. He's going to push us. He's going to say, okay, yes, that happened. Time to move forward. It's time to get your act together and turn things around. And so what are the struggles of the church in Pergamum? Well, in verse 14, John writes that there are people in the church who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What the heck does that mean, right? Who is Balaam and, and what teaching are they holding to of his? Well, this is a reference to, the story, uh, to a story that took place in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Numbers. Now, time won't allow us to fully unpack this story, so I'm going to provide you with the super condensed version. Uh, according to commentators, Baga, uh, Balaam was a pagan priest who made a living by interpreting dreams and casting spells. Interesting career choice. And in this effort to overthrow Israel, the leaders of the Moabites and the Midianites, enemies of the nation, approach Balaam about putting a curse on Israel. However, God prevents that from happening. Unfortunately, though, Balaam doesn't give up. He says, okay, that didn't work, and so I'm going to try something else. And he eventually determined that the only way that it would be possible to overthrow the nation of Israel was to get them to turn their backs on God and lose his protection. The only way it was going to be possible to overthrow the nation of Israel was to get them to disobey. And so in Numbers chapter 25, Balaam has the Moabite women invite the Israelite men to their fertility festival which included idol worship and sex with temple prostitutes. Now, apparently, there were believers in the church in Pergamum who were participating in similar activities that were not pleasing to the Lord. And the first sinful activity, specifically mentioned by John in verse 14, is eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, certainly this was prohibited in the Old Testament during the time of Balaam. But it's important for us to understand the context for the church in Pergamum. You see, prior to writing these letters to the seven churches in Revelation, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the church in the city of Corinth. You and I know this letter as 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that the act of eating food sacrificed to idols was not a sin unless it caused another believer with a weaker conscience to stumble in their faith. And so for the believers in the city of Pergamum, the primary issue was not so much that they they were eating food that had been at one time sacrificed to idols. But rather, the issue was that their consumption of food took place during, present tense, the actual pagan worship festival. So essentially, some of these believers in Pergamum were uh, participating in these pagan religious practices. Now, if if I'm being honest, I got to tell you, I read that and I had immediate judgment on those believers, right? Like, God forgive me, but like, man, I was all over. I'm like, come on. Like, what are you doing? That, that seems so obvious. Like, what? That just seems like an obvious decision you don't want to make. How do you find yourself in that position? Like, I, I don't, how did I get here? Like, I, how does that happen? How, how do they find themselves in, in such an, an overt sin? I mean, if we, if you have kids, you've been there, right? Like, you stumble upon your kids doing something, and you're like, what are you doing? Like, what are you, the couch is not a coloring book. Like, how am I supposed to clean this? Or why did you just karate kick your brother in the chest who's one and a half? That happened yesterday. That was yesterday. It's like, what, what are you doing? Like, come on, don't do that. Miles takes a lot of abuse in our household. Like, we, we get it, right? We're like, okay, what's going on? But... But if you keep digging in the context a bit more, you begin to understand what what led these believers to attend these pagan festivals. And of course, it doesn't make it right. But with more context, we begin to understand how and why they got sucked into such an overt sin issue. You see, these pagan festivals, these rituals, these meals that some of the believers participated in took place during these large trade guilds. Essentially this this gathering of people who were doing business with one another, who who were protecting their own interests. And so in other words, during this festival, business was happening. And if you wanted to make sure that you could make ends meet and provide for your family, the obvious thing to do was attend these festivals. However, for believers, to attend also meant engaging in sin. And so the believers in the city of Pergamum had to make a decision. Will I sacrifice financial gain and provision in order to remain committed to God's standards for my life? Will I submit to God's way or will I conform to the culture's way of doing things? And we have to make the very same decision. See, the temptation for us to compromise and and assimilate, to become like the world, it's the exact same today. One commentator writes, their temptations in Pergamum were all too like the sorts of choices all Christians living in non-Christian societies must make. And I recognize that in 2021, we might not be concerned about making decisions regarding food, sacrifice to idols, or or getting pulled into a pagan worship festival. But the temptation to become like the world and do things like the world does, that is very real. In your line of of work, in your business, perhaps the industry standard is to cut corners or, or to kind of show this lack of integrity. And so you have to ask yourself, well, what does it look like for me to do business as a follower of Jesus? In our society, there's a, a tolerance for and a widespread acceptance of homosexuality, gender diversity, gender transformation. So how do we as followers of Jesus make sure that our beliefs fall in line with Scripture and, most importantly, still demonstrate genuine love for people? Even when we disagree, they know where we stand. Love people. There's a huge focus in our culture on material advancement. Bigger and better. Got to get more and more and more. But how do we as followers of Jesus put God's kingdom first and experience contentment? In a world in which everyone seems to be focused on themselves, how do we humble ourselves and put the interests of others ahead of our own? And, of course, being different or doing things differently, there, there comes a cost with that. There is a price to pay. You might lose a client. You might lose some of your income. Your reputation might suffer. But we have to remind ourselves, what am I really here for? What is my purpose? And the answer to that question is very simple. Glorify God and make disciples. Glorify God and make disciples. It doesn't matter what you do from nine to five. It doesn't matter if you're in the home or out of the home, if you're a student or if you're retired. Glorify God and make disciples. It's that simple. Now, living it out is a whole different ballgame, but it's that simple when it comes to what is my purpose? What am I really here for? And so if we become like the world, our light grows dimmer. And we're no longer effective when it comes to reaching people for Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Man, I hope that's never me. Like we said at the beginning, to assimilate means to lose what sets you apart, which is exactly what Satan wants. Brilliant strategy. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get the Christians to do like everybody else, to make the same decisions as everybody else. To pursue the same things as everybody else, the same after the same, uh, the money, the cars, the entertainment, like everybody else. Brilliant. I'm gonna keep them just as busy as everybody else. Brilliant. Perhaps some of our trouble when it comes to being a solid disciple making church is that we look too much like the world. We're not different enough. And if that's the case, what do we have to offer to those if we're living just like them? Another commentator writes Too much of Western Christianity has become indistinguishable from our culture. Check this out too much of our evangelistic effort. Is geared toward persuading the world that we're acceptable because we are just like them. A breadcrumb and fish. That's stupid knockoff stuff from Abercrombie and Fish. Like we're, we're trying to be like the world. Why? Be different. It goes on to say, if if we affirm what the world affirms, or more often live as the world does, to what then do we invite them in conversion? that differs from what they already experience. And this is the tension followers of Jesus must manage. How do we live in close proximity with those who don't yet have a relationship with Jesus while at the same time preserving what makes us different because of our relationship with Jesus? And I know, sir, for some believers, for some followers of Christ, they, they take the approach of distancing themselves from the world so as not to be polluted by the world. And I get it, right? I, I understand. And for some, especially those who are newer to the faith, that may need to be your approach for a season. But avoidance cannot be our long-term approach. If our calling is to make disciples, it's going to be awfully hard for us to do that if we're never rubbing shoulders with those who don't have a relationship with Jesus. And you might say, Derek, well, aren't aren't there risks involved? I mean, couldn't they influence us more than we influence them? What about my kids? Aren't there risks involved? Of course there are. That shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Want to know why? Because as Christians, we forget that we're at war every single day of our lives. Every single day, we have a real enemy who's trying to take us out. Ephesians 6.12 says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual things. And that's why he goes on to write in the very next verse, in verse 13, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. So many of us as followers of Jesus, especially if we've been in the church for a long time, we know, we know, we know what we ought to do. All of that stuff I mentioned, go to church, read the Bible, pray, all that stuff. We know it, that ain't nothing new but we don't do it. And then the problem becomes, we are ill-equipped to enter the battlefield and we get our butts whipped. And we're no longer effective in pointing people to Jesus, which is why we're here. And we get sucked into whatever culture throws at us. We get distracted by all the junk and the headlines Satan is good at his job. The second sinful activity of the believers in Pergamum mentioned by John was sexual immorality. Here we go. Here we go. Verse 14. Verse 15 follows up talking about the same thing. It says, likewise, you also have those who hold on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, the teaching of the Nicolaitans was this false teaching that Christian freedom and the insignificance of the physical body permitted believers to engage in sexual immorality and, and anything else without consequence. And unfortunately, sexual morality was yet another way in which the church in Pergamum became like the world around them. They chose to fall in line with culture's approach to sex instead of practicing God's design for sex. And it's like, okay, do we as the church in El Grove have people who are living according to the beliefs of the Nicolaitans? Yeah, maybe not exactly. But it's our it's culture's approach, our culture's approach being to sex, being practiced by the church in Elk Grove. Well, I don't know. What does culture say? Are unmarried couples living together? Because culture says you gotta check compatibility first before you get married. That's just what you do. Are couples having sex outside of the context of marriage? I mean, because no one waits till marriage anymore, right? That's a thing of the past. Why would anyone do that? Is the church in El Grove engaged in pornography? Culture says, hey, it's a legitimate outlet for your sex drive, it doesn't hurt anybody. I will show you reports upon reports about how that ain't true. See, with this going on, we fail to uphold God's standard of righteousness and holiness. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7 says, I didn't call you to be impure, but to live a holy life. Like the church in Pergamon, we could be thriving in a few areas, but if we conform to culture and find ourselves living in sin, it's going to be awfully hard for us to be a healthy and effective church. And so in verse 16, John calls the church in Pergamum and us to repent, to turn from their sinful behavior and commit to living in a way that's pleasing to God. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus describes this intense approach at which we we ought to remove sin from our lives. He says, speaking metaphorically, if your right eye caused you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand caused you to sin, cut that stuff off. Because it's better to enter into eternity maimed than to go to hell. This is the intensity at which we should course correct. And if we fail to do so, verse 16 says, there will be consequences. It is coming Jesus says, otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, like I said two weeks ago, there is a lot of opinion about what this means. Here's what I know. One, it ain't good. Two, I don't want to experience it. Right? It ain't good. I don't want to experience it. But it's coming. Don't get it twisted like, oh, that's for someone else. No, this is, this is real. This is coming. See, as with the other letters written to the churches, this letter concludes with a reminder. There are great things coming to those believers who remain committed to the faith. It's a reminder that the struggles, the sacrifices, that the challenges we face now when it comes to living out our faith are worth it in the end. I've chosen Acts 20, 24 as my life verse because it serves as a a call to me to prioritize the things of God above all else. Paul writes, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And of course, I don't always get it right. I get distracted. I get fixated on the things of this world. I assimilate instead of acculturate. I lose sight of the things that I should be preserving when it comes to my differences as a follower of Jesus. However, my goal is for my commitment to Christ to be an ever increasing, or to be ever increasing in in every area of my life. And that's my hope and prayer for our church as well. And with God's help, that can be our reality let's pray Heavenly Father we are grateful for your word God for for who you are God for the grace that you show God we recognize that there are so many times where we only get it right in part God so we need your help God we need you to help us course correct we need you to help us to be different because that's what you've called us to do it's why we're here God, it may be for your glory and for your honor. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.